Good evening, church. Uh, tonight, Daniel's going to continue his series on the Psalms, uh, and we are going to continue what we started several weeks ago. It's been a few weeks. But instead of just reading the Psalms at the beginning of our service, we are going to sing through them together. They have been rewritten uh, in a poetic way uh, that matches a song that we already know. So tonight's Psalm is going to be Psalm 93, and it's going to be to the tune of the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. At this time, I invite you to stand as we sing together Psalm 93. Mm. The Lord assumes his seat as king, and he is clothed with majesty. He sing together as the church in Ephesians 5 verse 18 Paul says do not be drunk with wine for that is debauchery but be filled with the spirit and there's a contrast there and it is about what you will fill yourself with what will you fill your being with 
what is your vessel filled up with? Is it filled up with wine or some other thing of the world? Is it filled up with media? Is it filled up with culture? Is it filled up with an obsession with buying new clothes? Is it filled up with uh, some pursuit of what is it filled up with? What's your life filled up with? And the, Paul says, don't be drunk with wine. Don't, the idea is don't be filled up with wine. Be filled up with the Spirit. And after he says, after he gives the command, he lists a string of five Greek participles. And those define the manner in which the command is carried out. Do not be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. That's actually the command. Sometimes we think that the command is to sing. It's not. The command is be filled with the Spirit of God. And the manner in which we do that is singing to one another psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Giving thanks always and for everything, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And the, the list uh, is there in Ephesians chapter 5. But this is, as a church, how we get filled up with the Spirit. We go to the Psalms, and we sing the Psalms. And it's, as I'm sitting there, I'm, it's hard for me to keep from grinning in the back as, as he's leading this, and we're singing. I've been studying this Psalm this week. It's on my heart and mind, and we got to sing it as a church. And that's just so cool what a privilege to be able to do that and to have it set to music the title for the lesson this evening is the lord is exalted above all troubles and um that that really is all troubles what are the troubles that you have in your life what are the troubles that you are facing in your family what are those waves what are those Winds. What are those storms? Is it a physical malady, a spiritual circumstance, a, maybe uh, some kind of trauma in the home? What is it? And the Lord God is exalted above all of those things. We don't serve an apathetic God. We don't serve a distant God. We serve a God who has always drawn near to creation. When Adam and Eve rebelled, the Lord God was in the garden with them that day. And he continued to speak to them and to reach out to them. And he has done so all through history. In times past, he spoke by the prophets to our forefathers in many times and in many ways. And in, the, in these last times, he has spoken to us by his son. Hebrews chapter 1. God is concerned with us. He looks down on the children of man. And he sees our sufferings, and he sees the issues we're dealing with, and he is exalted above them, and he is sovereign over them. And this idea is all through the scriptures. When you look at this psalm, the very first thing that he says that ought to give comfort to a person, depending on your theology and depending on how well you thought of God, is he says the the Lord, that's my, uh, that's not my highlighter, the Lord reigns. 
that means the Lord is the king. He is the one who's in control. God is seated on his throne, and he gives a description of him. He says, number one, that he is robed in majesty, and that's to invoke an image in your mind. Whatever that image is, you're to picture as best as you can a being who is king, who is clothed in majesty. I don't know if I've ever seen anybody in my life that I would look at and say, you just look majestic. I don't, I don't know if I've ever seen anybody that I would give that description to. But this is true of God. He's robed in majesty. The Lord is robed, and it says that he has put on strength as his belt. So you're to get a picture of a mighty, sovereign king who is glorious to look at. How do you picture our God? We don't, we don't have images of him. It's one thing God said, don't do that. Don't try to box me down into an image or a drawing or a shape or something that man can put on me. And yet God is described all through the scriptures as dwelling in unapproachable light. I want to read to you a picture that to me is a picture of majesty. This is from Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. Isaiah saw this. This was a vision, but God gave him this privilege of seeing this, uh, this reality. And he was sitting on his throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Just imagine this. The train of God's robe filled up the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. So the seraphim had two wings that went like this and two that covered their feet. So two that were angled down and two that were out to the side by which it was flying. And one of the seraphim called to another. There, so God is in the middle. His, Isaiah is seeing this scene. The robe is filling the temple. The seraphim are above him. And the seraphim is shouting back to the other one that's across the way from on the other side of God. And he says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Do you see that glory? When you look out into the world, it's there. Go look on the stars, go look on the mountains, go out into nature, look at a newborn baby, fresh out of his or her mother's womb. This is the glory and the image of God right there for us to see, and it's amazing. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is a, a depiction that we can get just, we can grasp just a little bit at the majesty of the God that we serve. And I really believe it's, it's theologically foundational and substantive and important 
that we take these images of God and put them before our eyes and think of him in these terms so that we not see God as an angry despot and so that we not see him as an apathetic onlooker and so that we not see him in terms that are cast by movies that we've seen or ideas that we just conjured up and thought, or maybe they were just based on a feeling. They ought to be based in Scripture. This psalm starts off by saying, He is reigning. He's the king, and this is what he looks like. His robe is majesty, and his belt is strength. He's girded with strength, he's beautiful to look on, and he's glorious, and he's wrapped in strength. And then he says, yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old, you are from everlasting. I was uh, reading uh, earlier today, and somebody commenting on this psalm commenting on this picture just this immediate picture of God he says uh, we here see what I've lately averted to that in the power of God there is exhibited to us matter of confidence for our not investing God with the power which belongs to him as we ought to do and thus wickedly despoiling him of his authority is the source of that fear and trembling which we very often experience. Now, what he's getting at is he's saying, if it is that we're living a, a tepid, timid, fearful, lukewarm kind of life, it's because we have not seen God in the proper light. We've brought him down to our level, and we've seen him maybe as we've seen a pal. Or maybe we've seen him in terms of authority, but maybe in authority that's, that's far less than the authority that is due his name. And maybe... Because of that, when things happen and when there are terrors that arise in our lives, we see those issues, whatever they may be, as being exalted above God so that in those moments the faith is lacking and we think, We're, God, no one can solve this issue. This is outside anybody's control. Or maybe we see God as being able to control it, but we don't see God as being one who cares about it. The psalmist says he's reigning, and he's majestic, and he is girded with strength. He says strength is his belt, and he gives some idea of the measure of strength that we're dealing with. We're, we look into the world. We look into the face of darkness. We look into broader society. We look at the powers that exist, whether they be a political regime or some big 
cultural power that seems to be knocking over everybody in its wake and seems everybody, you know, as the power of the culture sweeps through on an issue, it just knocks everybody down. And this person who used to be a bulwark of the faith, they're knocked down too. And we just see these powers and we see them coming and we wonder, where is our strength? Well, notice what he says. He, he puts some terms on this. So God has uh, strength as his belt right here. And it says, yes, the world is established. The world is established. It shall never be moved. What will never be moved? What did he say? The world. That's right. The world will never be moved. And so we look at these things, and the important, the important thing, and we're going to look in just a second, this psalmist has no problem pointing out the waves and the terrors that do exist in the world. I think it's folly to pretend that there are no problems. I think it's folly to create a, a quote-unquote haven where the problems are never addressed at their face and where we say well we will never talk about those things I think that is problematic but the psalmist and all of the people of faith through the Bible they address those things but they address those things in light of a proper theology they look at the issues that do exist in the world and it's almost like there's a it's not a nonchalance it's not an apathy because there is a concern there's a care to make the world better. There's a care for it. And yet, as the waves are lifting up, the people of faith are like, look, we've got God on our side. And so he says, you look at, you look at the media, and I mean, I hear it all the time. The, the media is a disaster. I don't think the world's as bad as the media portrays it to be, for one. Media is a bunch of liars. Now, I do think that there is darkness. But it's nowhere near as dark as we sometimes think that it is but i hear all the time the world is just going to pot everything is it's all going downhill it's all breaking i you know i've i've heard some say i'm just by the at the rate we're going as a country as a nation as a world i'm just glad that i've lived most of my life and i'll be out of here before a number of the real big problems arise i'm just like i'm just gonna jump ship i'm just glad that it's gonna get real bad but i'm glad that i'll be gone that's not a good theology there have been wars and rumors of wars and there have been floods and famines and danger and peril and heartache and trial from the beginning of the world and there will be all the way until the end there's nothing new under the sun and by the way i do think things now today are infinitely better it's not infinite in an exaggeration significantly better than they were 400 years ago we're living it's not that bad but even if it was the psalmist says the world is established and it will never be moved. There's not a thing that man can do to move the world. Why? 
because he says up here at the top, the Lord reigns. And this says something of his reign. It's not a reign where you know, he's reigning in heaven and he's just ruling heaven and he lets the earth do as it is. He says the Lord's reigning there and therefore the world will never be moved. The world won't be moved because God's reigning. That's why he says the same thing in verse 2, but in a little bit different terms. He says your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Why is it that the world can't be moved? Because God's throne is established. And God's throne goes back to the beginning of time. And God's throne will be established until the very end of time. It doesn't matter. There are bad things happening in the world. Speak to them, but speak to them in light of the power and the majesty and the strength of our great God. He's above all of them. There's not a thing in the world that is above him or that ever will be above him. Jesus could tell his disciples, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And John could say, the one who's in you is greater than the one who's in the world. We have great power on our side. Now, you see the strength here, God. He's got strength as his belt. The world is established. It will never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting, it says. And just about the time that you start to get this kind of a picture of God, something will just come up in your life. I mean, it could be any number of things. It could be an army. I imagine that the Christians over in the Ukraine could feel that better than we could all the way across the pond. Bear Valley, the school that I went to, has a school in the uh, eastern part, excuse me, the western part of, uh, of uh, Ukraine. And by the way, western, western. I got to get this in my head. I keep pointing this way. The western part of uh, the Ukraine. And I imagine that they felt this to a degree. There are waves that exist. Uh, is it an army? Is it a powerful cultural wave that sweeps away everyone in its path? I attended uh, university, uh, Christian university from 2007 to, uh, I graduated in 2011. And I'm alarmed by how many in, in my class how many that I studied with, how many who, who had a Christian upbringing, I'm alarmed by how many of them have just fully embraced the, the base movements of culture. It's alarming. I look at them, I, this, I see the power that culture has. Once you've got numbers and you've got the crafty ways that things are worded and we get new definitions of what love is and people buy into it and they base it on emotion and it's it's alarming there's this powerful thing it's a it's a flood and i see that there is you know some are dealing in uh, dealing with broken relationships broken marriages rebellious children family drama of some sort these things are there and here's what they will try to do they will come in, and the, so these are just parts, it's part and parcel of a fallen world. They come in, and God's throne 
we have this idea of God sitting on his throne, and he's majestic, and he's girded with strength, and his throne is from of old. It's never moved. He says it never will be moved. It's firm now. So he speaks to the past, present, and future of God's throne. That It's just going to be this way all the way until the end. Once you establish that theology in your mind, and then one of these waves come in, the, the way the enemy is going to use it is, look, it says, the floods have lifted up. Notice this. The floods have lifted up, O Lord, The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. He uses, of all the power and sway that we have as a people, we don't have power over floods, do we? Can you do anything? Can a a town do anything once a, a flood is breaking through? Can anybody stand in the way of it? Can anybody stop it in its tracks? Have you ever been out in the middle of the ocean on a big ocean vessel in the midst of a storm and seen the wind howling and those waves and those breakers that are piling high? Have you ever seen that? It's an unstoppable force for a human being. And this is where a good theology comes in. A good theology looks on it, sees it, knows This cultural wave, this cultural flood that's rising up and knocking over my peers, I can do nothing about it. But I won't be moved by it because I'm being girded by the one whose throne is established, the one who established the world. These floods are lifting up their voice, and the thing the enemy wants us to see, just like Peter out on the water, he wants us to see the wind, he wants us to see the waves, and he wants us to forget about the one who's walking on it, casually. And he wants us to forget about the one who has power over all of it. So he uses a comparative here, and he says, in verse 4, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, The Lord on high is mighty. You compare it. You you get your theology. If 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 your theology is right, you're not going to be blind about, you're not going to be ignorant about the waves. You're not going to live in la-la land and say, oh, everything's so good out there. You're not going to do that. You're not going to lie about it. You're not going to pretend the problems aren't there. A good theology just looks them in the face and says, yeah, that's a wave. That's a flood. That's a big issue. God's mightier. Far mightier. He's above all of it. That's the God I serve. We have to get this picture in our minds of this great God. And when we go forth in faith like the great men and women of faith did in the Bible, we can conquer anything. David didn't go out into battle self-confident. That's a Western idea, self-confidence. David went out into battle with faith in God. He didn't go out and say, I've studied weaponry and I'm stronger than you. He went out and, I mean, he couldn't even wear the armor. He went out and he said, here's the deal. You've defied the living God and he will deliver you into my hands. David knew in the face of that enemy, personally, he could do nothing. But with God on his side, he could do anything. Why? Because God is stronger than any of these forces. A good theology sees them, points them out, stares them in the face, confidently, not in self, 
confident in him who was and is and who was to come. He is from of old, and he will always be. There's not a king on the earth who's outlasted him, not even close. He will be seated until the very end. That's my king. That's your king. What a great privilege it is to be at his service, isn't it? Amen? So here's what he says. What, what do you do with this? The waves are there. He says, yeah, they're there. God's bigger. That's what he says. And I understand that when you're in the midst of the darkness of whatever it is, it can be very hard to see that. That's why we need the brothers and sisters. We, just like a young tree in a storm, you don't just put a young tree out there without tethers that are tying it down. That's what God created the church for. Gather in. Get around people who are seeing rightly. Sometimes I've not been seeing rightly. I can see it right one day, the next day I feel like garbage, and it all seems grim. Go get around somebody who's seeing clearly. Get the good ideas from them. Be strengthened by them. Don't think to do it alone. But this is the God we serve. He's mightier than any of these things. And so here's what's required of us. It's very simple. But he says, your decrees... Let me just get a different highlighter color here. Your decrees are very trustworthy. How trustworthy? Very. Very. And in context, they're trustworthy enough that if you go back to these verses here, he says the world is established and it will never be moved. Why? Because God is reigning. God's the authority over it. And it is established from of old, and you are from everlasting. It's established now. It's always been established. It always will be established. How trustworthy are the decrees of God? They're trustworthy enough that they've stood the test of time. Every generation that arises says, what new thing can we do that those before us didn't do? Every generation thinks, we, those people all before us, they were just a bunch of fools. Well, the generation after us is going to look back and say, those people were a bunch of fools. And we got the new idea. We've got the bright idea. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. Just hold the line. Come to the word. Look to our God. Hold to his unchanging hand. And we will stand fast. And this will be a city on a hill. I really believe it. I'm glad to be a part of it. But here's what we do. He says, your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house. Holiness is fitting for your house. So the idea is, if we're in the house of God, it needs to be kept holy. When I was a boy in Minnesota, and we, we still kept this, we still keep this rule. By the way, if you ever come to our house, don't be alarmed if we say, would you please take off your shoes? Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and put that out there now, because I know we're going to have people. Don't be alarmed. This is not us being rude. I came from Minnesota, the sloshy, slushy Minnesota uh, winters and everything. Everybody up there, they've got carpet because tile and wood's too cold. And you don't walk into a house where you just were in the snow and mud and you bring the mud onto the carpet. Everybody takes off their shoes. It was just a rule all growing up. It's just been that way my whole life. I always feel a little weird wearing somebody's shoes, a little timid, or wearing my shoes. I don't wear other people's shoes. That'd be, that would be weird. Walk in, put someone else's shoes on, and walk through the house. But I, I feel a little weird wearing my own shoes in people's houses. I always ask, is this okay? And, um, but my mom had this rule, and there were a number of other rules. Take off your shoes was one of them. 
and as a boy, I better do it. How come? Because it wasn't my house, it was hers. This is God's house. It isn't mine. It isn't yours. What fits it? What suits it? Holiness. How do you get that? How do we be holy in the way that he's describing? Well, it's implied when he says, your decrees are very trustworthy. Look on the words of God and just trust in them. Hold the line, stand fast to them. I forgot my, uh, my physical Bible, so it's okay with you. I'm going to pull up one other verse real quick in Isaiah, but this is from Isaiah 59, and I thought that it was um, fitting for this. God's speaking to his people, and they're in the midst of punishment, and God's promising future blessing. But he says, As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, and my words that I have put in your mouth, listen to this, my spirit that's upon you, and my words that I have put in your mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. What he's saying is, keep talking about the word of God in your house. Dads, fathers, men, lead your homes in this way. In your home, bring the word of God to your kitchen table. Bring it to the bedtime routine for your little children. Do a devotion as a family every night. When you wake in the morning, go in and bow your head with your children and ask God for his blessings on that day. Put the words of God into your mouth and into your children's mouth. And he says, into your children's children's mouth. Meaning, if you're a grandparent, maybe you didn't do it with your ch children, but you can do it now as a grandparent. Go put the word of God into their mouth by speaking of it. You say it, they'll repeat it. We see evidence of that every night when James is doing this, don't we? They'll repeat it. And what that does is it keeps God's house holy through the generations when the thing on our mouth and on our tongue is the decrees of the living God. We serve a great God. He's higher than all the storms. And we ought to <clears throat> have a, a theology that is able to look the storm in the face, not lie about it, not pretend it's not there, but just know God's far greater. And we're so thankful for that. If, if you have any need at all, you need to come to Christ. Put him on in baptism. Or if you need to repent of something, or if you need to get wisdom or guidance, or if you just need the strength of the brothers, there's an opportunity to let that be known while we stand and sing this song.